Well, hey, welcome to Sedaris. Um, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 um, is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some place underneath a chair in front of you, hopefully. So go ahead and grab that one and turn over to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, take that one home with you. Everybody should have a Bible, so if you don't have one, just take that one. It's our gift to you. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel according to Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospel accounts, and they're right at the beginning of the New Testament, which is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, So go ahead and turn on over there, and there's no shame in using the table of contents if you have to. All right, guys? So um, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Well, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and uh, thanks for coming. And I think you guys, everyone here has chosen uh, the church uh, service over the Seattle Seahawks tonight. So you guys can give yourselves a a huge round of applause for that, too. Um, Great job. Great job. Extra grace. um, and, but we, we have, if you're new, this is an extra special time, an extra great time for you to come into the life of Sedaris because we've started a new sermon series recently um, that we're calling The Most Important Question. The Most Important Question. And we've called it that because we're, we're hoping to stay faithful to what uh, the, our author here, Mark, is doing throughout his gospel Throughout his gospel, he shows us this Jesus. He shows us this Jesus interacting with a host of different, uh, different people. And, and this Jesus is almost like a, a mystic figure. This Jesus is a mysterious figure, and everybody has to figure out who he is. Everyone's asking this one question of this guy, Jesus. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And so we've called that the most important question. We've called that the most important question. That's what we're going to be asking during this series. That's what we're going to be asking over the course of the next six months. Um, But tonight, what I want to do is I want to start by asking a different question, and that's, do you remember preparing for college? Do you remember preparing for college? Um, I I know for me, uh, preparing for college was a four-year process in high school, like many of you, right, where you had to get your GPA GPA up to a certain level. I studied for hours and days on end for the the ACT, uh, for the SAT, uh, took all these tests so I could have high enough scores so I could get into college, but not just any college. I wanted to get into the University of Colorado. The University of Colorado. Not CSU, that's the other state university in Colorado. Not CSU. CSU was an academically inferior type of school. it, our, our freshman year at CU, we would have had this joke, and it's kind, it kind of is intellectually superior, so it wasn't a great joke to say. I'm going to say that on the front end, okay? But we would say this, what does every student of CU and CSU have in common? And the answer was, they all got into CSU, okay? So they, they, they're kind of, a, they, it wasn't quite as rigorous to get into CSU. You could just kind of get through high school, and CSU's the next track. But, but I really wanted to get into CU, because getting into CU, what I thought that would do, would, it would set a, a different trajectory of my life because I thought it was a better institution than, than other colleges I had the option to attend. And, and this is because we really view this college time or the, the time right after high school as an inflection point, right? We, we view this time and the decision that we make after high school as a point that'll characterize and set us on a direction for the rest of our lives. 
It's, it's an inflection point. I, I had parents, and maybe you didn't feel that actually uh, graduating high school, but your parents most likely did. Um, I had parents, they felt it for me. And what was interesting was I got to watch them feel it for my little brothers. I have three little brothers, and two of them decided not to go to college. And so I got to see my parents kind of worry about what that, uh, what that decision would be for them. How, how they address that inflection point would actually take them in a different directions, and I saw them worry about that, you know? Um, it, it all eventually turned out fine for them. They've actually, I mean, through kind of their own other ways, they've kind of found more, sig- like a very significant career paths that are going to be really, really lucrative, so I guess the joke is on me at the end of the day, you know? Um, and so the, this... Viewing the time after high school as an inflection point, I want you to get to to be thinking about inflection points because this is how Mark presents Jesus throughout his gospel. Jesus is this inflection point. He's an inflection point. We see that how people answer the question of who Jesus is takes them in different directions in their lives. And so what what Mark would say is that, that you know, all these other questions that we ask throughout our lives, um, what do I do after high school? Which college do I go to? Do I go to college at all? Who do I marry? And then maybe this question that we think is such an inflection point question, but it actually isn't. Um, what city do I live in? That's a big question for us. Maybe all of these pale in comparison to the inflection point of Jesus and answering the question of who is Jesus. Think of it this way. Think of Jesus like a prism. And what, what happens in, in, in a prism is light comes into a prism. And, and based on, on the reaction of how that light hits the prism, different parts of that life go in different directions. Though they get separated out, right? Into red, orange, yellow, so, so on and so forth. What Mark shows is in his gospel, he shows different people coming up to the prism of Jesus as an inflection point, saying he's a good carpenter, just a good carpenter, shoots him out this way. They come into Jesus and say, oh, this is, this is just a good teacher, shoots him out this way. Oh, he's a demon-possessed man, shoots him out that way. And then ultimately he shows what happens when people come into contact with Jesus, conclude that he's the son of God, and how that changes their life tra- uh, trajectory as well. All right, so, so how you assess Jesus in this life will take you in vastly different directions vastly different directions. Um, maybe you're here tonight and you'd say that you're, you know, you're just kind of checking us out. Um, you're just asking this question with us of who is Jesus. And first, we, we just want to celebrate the fact that you're doing that. Um, the fact that you would do that in humility to honestly consider the big things of life is something that actually doesn't happen that much in our culture anymore. And so the fact that you're here is great. No matter how, at the end of this, this service, you answer the question of who is Jesus, we're just glad that you're here asking it with us, okay? Um, and, but maybe you're here tonight and you're a Christian. And you would say, yeah, Ryan, like, I get it. Like, when you're a Christian, your life looks different than if you're not. That's a pretty fundamental thing. You're, not, you're like not saying anything new right now. And, and I would say, yeah, you, you're right. Where there's this thing about being a Christian where after a while, we've learned to answer the most important question the right way. We've learned to answer who is Jesus by saying he's the son of God. And we've left it at that. We, we've left it at just this, this intellectual statement that we regurgitate time and time again, but what we've actually stopped doing is we've actually stopped considering what it means. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? 
What does that mean? What, what fleshed out? Th- this is a question that when we ask it, when we ask the question of who is Jesus, we can actually answer that a multitude of different ways. And that's what we started to do last week. Dave walked us through the first 11 verses here. And, and in the first 11 verses, um, Mark gives us the right answer to the question of who is Jesus. He, said, he shows us that God declared that Jesus was the Son of God at his baptism. And it's really creative way of what Dave saw was why Mark did that right up front. And if you want to listen to that, go download our app or go, go online and listen to the sermon from last week. <clears throat> but Mark has given us the answer here. And now he's going to flesh it out for us. Now he's going to flesh this out for us in verses 12 through 20. Mark's going to show us what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. What does that actually look like? And then he's going to show us uh, what the first disciples, how they responded to that question as well. Okay? So that's the flow that we're going to go tonight. We're going to go through uh, verses 12 through 20. Okay? So let's start here in verse 12. Pick it up with me. We're going to read these first two verses together. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It says, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, this is strange at this point in the gospel. So far in the gospel of Mark, this is what Mark has said about Jesus. He's brought up prophecies of John the Baptist that said John the Baptist was going to be the one that welcomed in the Messiah into Israel the powerful king-like Messiah figure. Jesus shows up to John the Baptist to get baptized, and John calls him a mighty one. When, after Jesus has come, or when Jesus is coming up out of the water, the very booming voice of God declares, this is my son in whom I am pleased. So at this point, we have the mighty prophecies. We have John the Baptist calling him a mighty one. We have the very booming voice of God. And then what happens? He's immediately led somewhere else. Oh, and and there's this piece. It doesn't seem that he's doing this under his own power. To be this powerful Messiah, son of God, welcomed into Israel with a booming voice, he doesn't even have autonomy over his own coming and going. This is the first thing we learn about Jesus. The first thing we learn about Jesus is he's the humble servant of the Trinity. He's the humble servant of the Trinity. That he looks to God the Spirit and God the Father to find out where his direction is going to be in this world, to find out what his mission is going to be about. We actually see this a couple times throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has this weird habit where he, he sneaks away in the morning and he prays. He prays. And, and it's apparent that during these prayer times that he's gaining what it looks like is marching orders for that day. That he's gaining from the Father his points of mission that he's going to be accomplishing soon. And so he does this over the course of three years and eventually seeking the direction of the Father more and more and more and more. Puts him on a cross. It it, it kills him. And so when we ask the question of who is Jesus, the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is the humble servant of God that is going to be humiliated. Is this your idea of who Jesus is? Is is Jesus this humble servant? 
Because this is what Mark continually portrays him as throughout his gospel. Throughout his gospel, he seems to be going through and, and operating with a ton of authority. He speaks as one having authority, they say. He casts out demons. He, he does mighty miracles, and all the people are ready to make him king, but, but he just wants to be a lowly servant. Who is Jesus? He's the humble servant of God, come to accomplish his mission and not his own. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And that's the first thing we learn about him here in the temptation account. Okay? And, and then we learn something else here about who Jesus is. Since the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, what's that about? And so to understand uh, this next thing about Jesus, we have to understand what the wilderness is. What is the wilderness? Um, I eventually did get into the University of Colorado at Boulder. I eventually got there. Don't worry. I made it there. And um, when I went to Boulder, uh, I decided not to bring a car with me. Um, that wasn't for any noble reasons. I just saw uh, my future slightly, and it was one that I didn't have a lot of money in. And, and so I couldn't afford insurance payments or gas. And so instead, I kind of switched those future variable costs for just an, uh, the, the fixed cost of a bicycle. I bought a bicycle when I went to college. And I rode my bike everywhere. I rode it to class, I rode it home again, I rode it to lunches, I rode it to dinners, I rode it to my friend's house, um, I rode it to dates. It turns out like if you ride a bike, you don't have to pick up the girl for the date, you can just meet there. Um, and so I would do that. And um, I even started riding it for fun sometimes. Um, and so I rode my bike everywhere. It like, became an extension of me, essentially. And um, I have this vivid memory of going home at some point in my sophomore year. All my brothers were still at home. Going home, I took the bus home, and my brothers wanted to play basketball in the backyard. Uh, my brothers love basketball because they're all taller than me. And so this never went well for me. Um, I'm not that great. I'm not, I'm not that tall. Um, I'm not as athletic as they are. They're very athletic. Um, anybody who's played Sunday morning volleyball with me on your team, you realize that, like, if, if we're about to be eliminated by the game point, um, I'm going to be the one that messes it up, okay? I'm going to be the one that, that messes it up and we lose the game. Okay, that's me. Um, so anyways, I go home to play basketball with my brothers, but I completely dominated them. I just completely dominated my, my brothers who are all bigger than me. And that's because what I realized is they'd been sitting on their butts playing video games for the past couple of years. And all I had to do was run side to side on the court. They'd get tired and I'd <laughs> dribble around them for easy layups. I, it wasn't even fun for them. I couldn't do it very long. And so this is kind of what the aspect of, of wilderness was to the Hebrews. The wilderness was a place of testing. Any basketball player will, will tell you that the, the mechanics of shooting, passing, and dribbling is very, very important. But unless these are on top of a foundation of just general aerobic stamina, it doesn't matter. And that's what happened to my brothers. Their aerobic stamina was tested in the wilderness of the basketball court, and they failed while I flourished. And this is because the wilderness, what it does is it exposes uh, humanity's dependency. It exposes what we trust in. It exposes what we trust in. Um, 
there's the textbook example, um, well, I guess the, the Bible book example, I guess, of this in the Bible is the Israelites. The Israelites themselves, um, before, when they were in Egypt being oppressed uh, through slavery and genocide, God calls Moses and he says, you're going to save them out of there. And right at the very beginning, he says, you're going to save them into the wilderness. You're going to save them into the wilderness. Moses says, okay, he goes to the elders of Israel. They're like, yeah, take us anywhere but here because this is not going well for us at all. Take us to the wilderness, okay? And so after the whole story, 10 plagues and all that gamut, you have a couple million people lining out into the desert, into the wilderness, and they're tested. They're tested on whether they trust God or not, and they completely rebel. It turns out they didn't trust God to take care of them. It turns out that when in the wilderness, that this place of danger, of chaos, of famine, it turns out out there that they didn't trust God to take care of them in the midst of that. And instead, they get angry at God and ask them why he has them there. Why did you lead us out here to die, they would say. With the exception of a couple people, Moses and his aide Joshua, they love it in the wilderness. They trusted in God and they're flourishing. You see Joshua in like this prayer tent thing all the time, just having a great time. He goes into the promised land. It's like, hey, it's great up there. It's great down here, wherever. It's all good. The wilderness tests our dependency on God. And for those who trust in God, they flourish. They flourish. And, and that's what's happening here with Jesus. It says, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. This is something the Israelites didn't actually have to encounter. They didn't encounter Satan himself showing up at their doorstep. Jesus did a much greater greater oppression here. And it says he was with the wild animals. This is more intense than what the Israelites faced. They had strength in, in numbers to fight off wild animals. Jesus is by himself. The other gospel writers also take into account, hey, that, that Jesus was fasting for 40 days. Jesus is at his most vulnerable state in the wilderness, but he flourishes. Look at how it concludes. And the angels were ministering to him. And the angels were ministering to him. So we have a, an incredibly vulnerable, oppressed Jesus in the wilderness who's flourishing because he's depending on God. He is the faithful servant of God. And, and, and this is why John wants to bring this out to us. He's writing to Christians in Rome. This gospel is addressed to Christians in Rome under the oppressions of Nero, where, where Nero is taking the Christians. He's scapegoating them for, for things that are taking place in the, in the empire and in the city directly. And he's lining them up and lighting them on fire to keep the streets lit at night. That's a wilderness experience. And, and Mark is showing them how, how Jesus had the very same spirit that those Christians had. And he's saying that Jesus was faithful in light of oppression. And you know what happens? There's flourishing here. This whole wilderness dynamic. If, if you're faithful in the wilderness, you can flourish. That's what these Christians needed to hear. That if they would stay faithful, they could flourish. Can you remember a wilderness season in your life? Can you remember it? 
if maybe you can say, you know, I haven't really been tested by God in that way, a place where I felt that, that I was in particular danger, that God had brought me to a place that was, that was dangerous, that was scarce, I was forced to depend solely on him. But can you think of a time that that could happen to you at the very least? Mark here is saying that if, if we are faithful to God, that even that time of, of chaotic danger and famine difficulty can be the, great, the place of the greatest flourishing. This is how it works in the church. The times of the most in, incredible, awful persecution of the church are the times when it's grown the most throughout all of history. The times when it was the most fruitful was the times when Christians were faithful in light of the wilderness. All right. So, so that's the second thing we learn about Jesus. He is the true Israel. He is that faithful servant with the Spirit of God in the wilderness. And we, we, we learn a third thing in, uh, about Jesus and the temptation. And that's that, he's, that Satan is diametrically opposed to Jesus. Satan can't be everywhere. Um, but when Jesus is at his most vulnerable, he shows up to try to get him to rebel against God in the wilderness. So who is Jesus? He's diametrically opposed to, to Satan's kingdom of sin. All right? And, and, and the question is, is how? What about Jesus kind of ruffles Satan's feathers? And, and what about Jesus um, is a threat to Satan? And, and that's answered in our next little section here. Pick it up with me in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So the temptation in the wilderness is over. Uh, John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus starts his mission in Galilee. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, this term gospel, we talked about it a, a couple weeks ago, but I'll, I'll go through it for those of you who may not have been able to have been here. This term gospel, um, also translated the good news from the Greek word euangelion, had, had rich meaning and was used quite commonly in Jesus' day. And, and it was used in the, in the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire was always at war somewhere else, trying to expand the empire to try to get more people in the empire or to try to get more trade routes or, or other things like this, more power in general. And, and when it, whenever they wrought a big victory, what they would do is they would send uh, messengers throughout the kingdom to all of the cities and all of the major towns, and they would go into a town and they would say, I have a euangelion, I have a gospel, I have a good news to proclaim, come here uh, tomorrow at noon, or whenever the set up time to do it, so that they determined to, to say it came. Um, and everyone would come there and th they would spend time um, pr announcing the victory that took place, and then also um, outlining what the positive ramifications for the, uh, the citizens of the kingdom were, whether that be increased trade, increased economics, uh, increased people that they could tax, and so the kingdom would get richer, just all these things, right? And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he co-ops this, this thing that the Roman Empire did. He proclaims the gospel of God. He proclaims that God has wrought a victory and that there's positive ramifications to the citizens of that kingdom, 
So that's what gospel is rooted in. That's what this notion of gospel is rooted in. And, and what is the gospel? We have the, the most miniature version ever here in verse 15. I think it's the smallest, most miniature version in the whole Bible. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what does this mean? What does this mean? All right. Um, it starts with the time is fulfilled. Um, the Israelites uh, w- had a, a very good notion of time. And, and by that, I mean they had a very good notion of history. They knew uh, the timeline of all of history. They knew where it was headed. They knew where they were at in the story and what their part in the story was. Um, how did they know that? Great question. Um, God had appeared to the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and told them this, revealed this to them. He had appeared to Moses and, and revealed this to him. He had appeared to the prophets and revealed this to him and given them the scriptures that they had of the Old Testament. Revelation as to, to how history was, where it was coming from, where it was going, and what their part in it was. And it went something like this. Um, at first, God created everything. He created everything, the, the universe, the earth, plants, animals, humans, and it was all good. And, and, and what he meant when he said that it was all good, it was created all good, was that it all related to, uh, all the pieces related to each other perfectly. Humans related to each other perfectly. Humans related to God perfectly. Humans related to animals perfectly. Uh, they're most likely vegans. Sorry for those of you who love meat. They related to animals perfectly. They related to the earth perfectly. Okay? But then shortly after creation, we have this thing called the fall. We have this thing called the fall, where, where humans in this perfect creation, where everything is, is functioning together in perfect union, they decide to throw off the rule of God and rebel against God. And when that relationship between humans, men and women, and God becomes broken, all the other ones fall to the floor. Humanity now can't relate to each other well. Even the marriage relationship was supposed to be the most intimate of relationships, right? It's now characterized by power plays, strange desire. That's right there in Genesis 3. Even their relationship with animals is broken. Now humans start killing animals. Their relationship with the earth is broken. The earth doesn't seem to yield its crops like it used to. Everything is broken. And then uh, what the, the next point in the timeline of what the Israel saw was just this the general notion of redemption that God was doing. Like he shows up to Abraham and he says, hey, I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to bless every nation through you, you and your offspring, through you Israelites. I'm going to fix it all. And so eventually they build this kingdom. They have this huge kingdom in Israel and, and then they rebel against God. And it's all ruined again. And on all, all, all the prophets in your Old Testament, like the second half of your Old Testament, those are written during the time when the kingdom is crumbling. It's crumbling. And they say, you know what? God is telling us there is a time. God speaks for these prophets and says, there's a time when I'll send a Messiah figure. You're going to wait for a while. But I'm going to send a Messiah figure, and he's going to th- take up this task of redemption because it's not happening through you, Israel. He's going to take up this task of redemption. And so when Jesus comes up on the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled, he's saying your wait is over. Your wait is over. That's what he's saying to the Israelites. And this is how they would have taken it. Saying the the, the wait is over. 
<clears throat> so the, the time is here, and so what is it going to look like? That's the next question, right? What's it going to look like then? That's the, the second part of this little gospel. It says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. How close is your hand to your body? It's close. It's really close. So Jesus is saying, I'm here. The kingdom of God that's going to bring about this redemption is really close. It's as close as your hand is to you. It's really close. And there's something we have to understand about kingdom um, in order to grasp this statement. Um, and, And that's this, that a kingdom is ruled by a king. Or you could say a kingdom is where a king reigns. When my, my wife and I, we, we moved to Seattle this summer, and, and we determined that our kingdom, our apartment, um, we, are, we are kings of our apartment, we determined that, that our kingdom was going to be characterized by uh, the clean lines of mid-century modern furniture, it was going to be characterized by beautiful area rugs, and, and, and wonderful neutral colors, okay? We had tried loud colors before, it doesn't work, it's just too much. We move in, we kind of sign our lease before getting out of here. Uh, Dave does the scouting for us, he did a great job. He kind of let us know, hey, the kitchen's kind of yellow. We get in and that kitchen's really yellow. He was so right, it was so, yeah, not just like one shade of yellow, two shades of yellow that were like, they're not even organized, it was, it was awful. And not just the walls, the ceiling is yellow. You walk into the kitchen, you turn on the light, and you get yelled at, like, just rolling out of bed, trying to make coffee, and your kitchen's yelling at you. Like, that's no way to live in a kingdom, right? That's no kingdom for us. So this is what we did. We, we executed our judgment on it. We bought gray paint, and we painted over that, those yellow walls and that yellow kingdom. That's what we did. Because kingdom... There's always this notion, this implicit notion of judgment tied to kingdom. You can't have kingdom without judgment. God's kingdom can't come in full to this earth unless the, the, he has subjects of, within his kingdom that are willing to propagate his rules, to, to willing to bring about his mid-century modern furniture and his area rugs and his neutral colors, you know? Judgment is always part of bringing a kingdom in. And so that's what we have to understand about kingdom, that judgment is tied to this kingdom because, because without it, without subjects in the kingdom that are about the same mission that the king is about, what we're going to have is this crumbling redemption plan again of Israel that we saw time and time again, of you and I in our own lives that we experienced time and time again, right? And so this creates a problem for us. This creates a problem for us. All of a sudden, we're on the other end. All of a sudden, you and I are the rebellious ones that, that really can't be in the kingdom if the judgment were to come in full. You and I are those yellow walls, are the yellow ceiling. This creates a huge problem for us, which is confusing because Jesus used the word gospel. Isn't this a good news? Isn't this the good news, Jesus? Why? Why are you talking about kingdom that comes with judgment that all the prophets talked about coming with judgment? I thought this was good news, Jesus. And it is good news because this last part, this last part of the gospel gives us a hint that something's happened so that we can be citizens of this kingdom too. It says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Um, you've probably encountered this word repent in some loud, awful ways in your life. And so we're just going to throw all those out for now. Throw all those out for now. Um, and just keep this literal translation. It really just means change your mind. Change your mind. Repent, the Greek metanoia, meta, change, noia, mind. Change your mind. That's what it means. And so the question is, what is Jesus asking the people of his day and us to change our minds about? What are we supposed to change our minds about? And to understand that, we have to understand what Jesus' main focus of his ministry was. At one point, he'll say, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners to repentance. You see, Israel was still actually rebelling against God. There was actually tons of people who who knew the the Mosaic law um, that didn't want to follow it at all. And the Pharisees were kind of the religious figures who were trying to get the people to follow the law, and the people were like, no, that's okay. We'd rather work on the Sabbath. We'd rather do these other things that weren't in line with with the Mosaic law. We'd rather be sinners. And, And Jesus spends most of his time with these sinners. That's his ministry, because he's trying to help them change their minds about God. He's trying to help them see God as true and beautiful and just and and gracious and forgiving. He's trying to change their minds about God so that they will turn and see, uh, so they'll praise him and that they'll obey him. He's trying to change their minds about God so that they'll turn and they'll obey God. Jesus is a fulfillment of that same Mosaic law. Other, he's, he'll preach sermons, and it's, there's one counted in the book of Matthew that kind of expounds on, on the Mosaic law and how he's a fulfillment of it. But his main focus was to draw sinners back to God. All right, so that's the first piece, repent. Then there's this other piece that says believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Believe in this gospel of God that he's proclaiming. Believe in it. And that's literally to believe this other pieces that we've been talking about, which is the time is fulfilled. Jesus is here. He's the Messiah, and he's going to bring about a kingdom, and he's making a way for us to get in. It says believe in that. Believe in that. And, and this isn't just an intellectual ascent of facts. Sometimes I can be too logical, and and I can just kind of lay, these are the facts you need to believe, just kind of believe it, you know, but this isn't actually what Jesus is talking about. It's not just like an intellectual ascension to a certain set of propositions here. This, This notion of believe carries with it this idea of trust. You trust something when you lean on it, when you lean on it, when, when you trust that it'll hold you up. It's, it's when you're in the wilderness and you trust that God can deliver you. When you trust that there's some, some sort of content there that you're leaning on that has power, you're all trusting your chairs right now. You're trusting the power of your chairs right now. I think, this, I think that analogy is used all the time. I'm sorry I used it. Um, but trust is believing in the power of, of a content of something. Okay, and so that's what believing in the gospel is, okay? <clears throat> Repent and believe the gospel so that, that, that's repentant belief in gospel and kind of its most um, base and still kind of lofty level kind of way, way to talk about it. What does this actually mean? What does this actually mean, right? And Mark includes a story of it for us. He gives us a small example next as to what this all actually means. What does this all actually come together? What does it actually make people do? What does it actually look like for a human to do this? 
all right? And that's in verse 16. So, so look at it with me in verse 16. Jesus says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they are fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Followed him. What's happening here is Jesus is finding disciples. He's finding disciples. And, and we know this because this is actually something that happened a lot in Jesus' day. In its base sense, uh, discipleship was what people would say that they were of kind of old dead people. Um, so you could be disciples of old dead uh, philosophers and religious figures. Uh, people would go around saying, I'm a disciple of Socrates. I'm a disciple of Pythagoras. I guess they really liked triangles if you're a disciple of Pythagoras, right? Um, I'm a disciple of Epicurus, who was a great religious leader and thinker that was old and dead. And the Pharisees kind of saw this happening in their culture, and they were like, we're disciples of Moses. We're disciples of Moses. So at its most base sense, it means to kind of adhere to a set of, of values of how you're supposed to live your life from old dead people. Um, but in Jewish culture, it actually was played out with alive people, with alive teachers. The, the Pharisees, they had disciples. The scribes, they had disciples. The Sadducees, they had disciples. In other gospel accounts, um, it talks about John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. And these were people who a, a, a great, uh, well, not, not necessarily great, but a teacher would come to them and they say, follow me. And, and they would renounce everything in their lives and they would commit their lives to following after this teacher, um, learning what they were teaching, learning their values, their ideals of what life was supposed to look like in the world, and then imitating how they lived. That's what the call of discipleship was. That's what the call of discipleship was. And so this is the flow that we've done tonight, okay? We've seen how Jesus is in opposition to the kingdom of sin, with say, uh, uh, the kingdom of sin with Satan tempting in the wilderness. And then we see that he's come to put up his own kingdom uh, going on here. And then we see him as calling people, calling disciples to enlist them in his kingdom, to enlist them in his kingdom. And what's their job? Their job is to be fishers of men, literally to call the rest of Israel to repent and believe the gospel, just like he's calling people to do. And he's going to send them out later to do that even on their own. He's like, there's a lot of towns, you guys two by two, and you guys take some of the towns too. I can't do, do all this by myself, guys. So, th so this is kind of the flow of, of the gospel of, according to Mark at this point. We've done a lot of work to get to this point, and, and we've answered, we've been asking the question of who is this Jesus, and we're actually presenting with a new question now, aren't we? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because if it's true that Jesus is this humble son of God come to earth, and if it's true that he's in opposition to a kingdom of sin, and if it's true that he's setting up his own kingdom on earth that's supposed to mend all of the relationships that, that we have with everything and make all of the universe work in shalom again, if it's true that he's calling us to be a part of it, if it's true that repentance and belief is all that's necessary to get into the kingdom, 
What do we do? What, what do we do? You see how Jesus is an inflection point? You see how he's functioning as an inflection point that forces you to make a decision of how to live your life next? This is what Jesus did to every town he went into. He served as an inflection point, and we see him being an inflection point for these first disciples. They leave everything, and they follow him. Now, they are actually acquainted with Jesus. They, they, they knew Jesus. It's not quite as distant as, as, they weren't quite as distant as it seems here. Andrew, Simon's brother, was actually one of the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes to prison, and Andrew's like, well, I guess I'll fish again. So he's fishing, and, and he, but, but after he was, after uh, Andrew saw Jesus be baptized, and after Jesus was baptized, he goes to his brother uh, Simon and says, hey, I found the Messiah. Simon tells his friends James and John, and, and in the Gospel of John, we actually have a, a kind of a, an account of before Jesus calls the disciples, he gets acquainted with them a little bit. But now uh, Jesus goes to the wilderness, and he's come back, and now he's, he's saying, these acquaintances, these guys, I'm going to call them to follow me. I'm going to call them to follow me, and they drop everything. They drop everything to follow him. They leave their careers of fishing, they, they, they leave their boats. They leave their homes. Uh, James and John and Mark make sure to show us that they leave their father Zebedee. Ze- Zebedee, they leave him with the hired servants. You read in between the line there, they say, Mark is letting us know, hey, they're costing their dad two hired servants. He has to go hire more people now to do the work. Zebedee, poor Zebedee just lost his free labor. But they've left it to follow Jesus. They've left it all so they can be fishers of men. They're going to follow this new master with this new mission. That's what they've done. Now, I don't want to go too far and overstate this. This didn't mean complete liquidation of their things, okay? Um, Over the course of the Gospels, we'll see that they use Peter's boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. They do that a couple times. Probably did it more than a couple times. They use the boats to fish. We're going to see that too. Um, James and John, we'll, we'll see their parents kind of come back into the scene as characters a couple more times, okay? So it, it didn't mean complete liquidation of, of everything that they knew once before. But at the same time, it, it didn't just mean that they gained a new priority that was bigger than everything. It didn't just mean that Jesus was uh, this new priority that they just had to make sure was bigger than, than their, their money, their possessions, their relationships, that Jesus just didn't have to go bigger than these in priority, you know? And we actually see this really clearly um, later in the, in the Gospel of Mark when they respond to someone who Jesus asks to get rid of everything. Um, it's in Mark chapter 10. We'll throw it up here on the screen. This is right after Jesus asks or this is when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter, this is, this is the part I want us to see. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's not one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, children and lands with persecutions and then in the age to come, eternal life, eternal life. You see, prior, prioritization isn't the right word to talk about how these disciples have now reordered their lives. They, they, they still had some finances. They probably still had their boats. They still had their possessions. They still had their relationships. But Jesus functioned as supreme authority over these things. If Jesus would have looked at Peter and said, hey, go sell your boat. We need to like give that to these poor people we just came into contact with. Peter would have done it like that. If Jesus would have looked at James and John and been like, hey, you guys are going to go to this distant land over here and you probably won't ever see your family again, they would have gone. They would have done it. And so <laughs> this is the challenge for us. This is what the gospel of Mark does. It has this way of showing us what it really means to be a Christian, what it really means to, be, uh, to look at Jesus and call him a master. Is this how your life is ordered as a Christian? Is it this supreme authority thing or is it this priority aspect? Uh, the, the, a great exercise to do is to just write down the five most important things in your life and, and to honestly ask yourself the question, what would I do if Jesus asked me to get rid of this? It's a hard exercise. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian tonight and you're like, yeah, I get that being a Christian will cost you something. That's why I haven't gone all in yet. Like, if I was a Christian, I'd lose several significant relationships in my life just, just right away. Whether it be your parents, your siblings, your friends, your coworkers, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you know. I want to let you know this is equally hard for Christians. This is equally hard for us to process through, to process through Jesus having supreme authority over our lives. This is scary for all of us. But I want to say two things to us to help us really process this well and honestly and allow for growth. Don't run away if you're not there yet. That's okay. I want to allow for growth. The first thing is keep asking this most important question with us. Keep asking who is Jesus?